Father, again, we are thankful that you meet us here. That is your desire to teach us. We invite your Holy Spirit, the teacher, the comforter, uh, to come and minister to us, speak to us, uh, confirm, confront. Uh, Lord, the, the, our own thinking, challenge us in how we think about church and uh, what you really desire for your local church to be. And uh, we just thank you for this church and for the many years that it has served, the people's lives that it has touched and changed forever. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. On uh, the administration of the church, if you remember, we, uh, we were talking about church organization and administration, not the most exciting topic out there, but very important because this is how the church gets things done. This is, this is the, the, the leadership of the church, and as go the leader, so goes the church. And so, uh, so it's very important, even though it may not be the most exciting topic in the world. Um, administration of the church is probably even less exciting than organization of the church. Uh, so we'll, st- we'll start with that, and then we'll get into something that might be a little more exciting. Um, Various forms of church government. Now, when we talk church government, we talk about how does the church govern itself? How, what is set up? What do these leaders do? Um, and so various forms. There is the, the monarchical form. This is more the Episcopal system. The Episcopal church operates this way. The Roman Catholic church operates this way. Um, more like a monarch where the bishops preside over dioceses. Uh, with one in ultimate authority, and that would be the Pope. Uh, The Pope in the Roman Catholic Church is the ultimate authority. What he says goes. Um, And so he is, in a sense, the monarch, the king, if you will, uh, of the church. Uh, It's very top-heavy. And uh, if you've been in the Catholic Church, if you've been a part of the Catholic Church, you you understand that it is very top-heavy, that there's not a lot of interaction or, or people moving in in offices. Uh, That's mostly just the priests and the bishops and the pope that are running things. And uh, the people come and the people go. Um, The right to ordain other bishops lies in the bishops themselves. So bishops get to pick who the bishops are um, and who who comes up uh, in those ranks. It was started in the second century, and this form of church government is not found in the New Testament. Uh, You can't find it anywhere. It kind of takes after kings and, and earthly government. The second form is a presbyterial form. Anyone guess what kind of church uses the presbyterial form? Presbyterians, good. <laughs> you guys are right on it. Um, this is a much more representative form of government. Um, Presbyterians and reformed churches Uh, use this form today. It's similar to the U.S. government. Uh, It's very similar to to how the the government works. They have what they call the session, and this is the local rule by elected elders in the local church. So the local church has the session. Um, We would call it the governing board, um, is what we call it here in our church. And then the session, then they have the presbytery, which is a ruling body uh, of ministers and representative elders from the local churches within a district. Um, We have DEXCOM, the District Executive Committee. This is made up of pastors from our Western Pennsylvania district 
and uh, that would act kind of like the presbytery. Then they have the synod, uh, which is a governing body between the regional presbytery and the national assembly. So it's just one step bigger um, in the synod. And then the general assembly, and that's the highest governing body in the national level in the Presbyterian church. Um, and so the presbytery. So it's just kind of broken down, much more representative than the monarchial, because that's just the monarch, only the top, very top heavy. This is much more representative. The third kind is the congregational form. Um, this is very much a democratic form of church government. Um, no outside man or group of men uh, should exercise authority over a local church. The local church kind of governs themselves. This is the form we have. Um, and a lot of those others, as you may or may not know, they will tend to move pastors around at their will. Um, within the local church, as long as the pastor's happy with the church and the church is happy with the pastor, he could stay forever. Um, and some pastors are there 30, 40 years um, in one local congregation. Um, and so the congregation decides and determines those sort of things. Um, the government is in the hands of the members of the church. The pastor is the only elder in the church uh, and is called by the congregation. Uh, the deacons are chosen to help him shepherd the church. All decisions are brought back to the congregation. Now, this is where we differ. Um, we somewhat have a congregational form. We kind of mix the presbytery and congregational. We don't bring every decision back to the congregation. Can you imagine if we did? Um, if we had to have, and again, it would be majority rule on every decision that was made. Um, we bring the budget to the congregation. Um, we bring major, like, uh, you know, the building was brought to the congregation. Bylaw changes are brought to the congregation. But the day-to-day -day operation of our church is done by the staff, um, overseen by the elders. And so the, the staff report to the elders every, every month. Um, not, I don't go and give a report. I don't turn a report in. Um, but on behalf of Bob and Denny, what is happening in the church is reported to the elders uh, and input is given. Um, so we are kind of a mix of presbytery and congregational uh, with that. Uh, various characteristics of church government. No matter what form of government a congregation or denomination takes, certain things should be present. One, the sovereign governance of the Holy Spirit. I don't care who the elder is. I don't care who the pastor is. I don't care who the board members are. The Holy Spirit better be the one in charge. Um, or we're all meeting for no particular reason. Um, and so uh, it's very important that when pastors are called, when staff is el uh, added, even support staff. Uh, you know, we take very seriously who we bring on as administrative assistants, receptionists. You know, they, they need to have a vibrant walk with the Lord uh, because they are part of the workings in leadership of this church. Um, and so the sovereign governance of the Holy Spirit, dependence on the teaching of the apostles, that's Acts chapter 242. They devoted themselves uh, to the apostles' teaching. So scripture is the only thing we have to stand on. Um, and then freedom in structure, and that is true, uh, that there, there needs to be some freedom on how to structure things uh, within the church, within the culture, 
what is just the best way to care for everybody? Um, and so there is a lot of freedom. Let me just give you some concluding observations as far as organization and administration. Uh, there are uh, numerous variations in the type of church government today. Uh, there's a lot of different types. We have everything from absolute dictatorship to extreme democracy. Um, we probably, in one sense or another, have that within the alliance. Um, there are some pastors who rule with an iron fist. They have their thumbprint on everything. Nobody sneezes without the pastor's approval. I don't think that's right. Their church growth and history of moving from church to church to church to church to church pretty much says that's not right. <laughs> uh, but you will have that. To the extreme democracy where, well, let's just put it up for a vote. Um, you know, right down to what the pastor preaches. You know, what's the next series? Well, let's put it up for a vote. What do you think it ought? Now, that's where the supremacy of the Holy Spirit comes in, allow him to lead. Um, so there are all kinds of variations of church government. Uh, church government is very adaptable. Uh, there's an adaptable nature of church government. We have to find what works best within a given church or within a given region and go with it. Church size, as you can imagine, affects the efficiency of church government. Um, we have moved in the last several years, I think even before I was here, this move was, was going, to where from being elder-led... The church is becoming staff-led, which means the staff are making much more of the, the spiritual decisions and kind of informing the elders uh, as a sounding board, as be praying, as give your input, rather than the elders deciding where it is going. And that has just a lot to do with the size of our church uh, with the staff and the size of our staff. I mean, we have six full-time pastoral staff uh, now, and, uh, you know, we meet every other week, every two or three weeks, and determine where we need to be heading, what we need to be doing, what the, the church sounds like, looks like, uh, how it will operate. So uh, we have kind of moved from elder-led to staff-led uh, in that. Some, some have moved much farther than we have, uh, that the elders are not even necessarily informed. It is just all staff-led. Um, I don't know that that's healthy either. There needs to be that check and balance. As the Holy Spirit moves, we need to have that consensus of the Spirit uh, between laity and uh, clergy. Uh, there are advant uh, advantageous characteristics of all kinds of church government. You can find pros and cons in every one of them. Um, and so there is no right form of church government. There's no, well, there could be wrong forms, but there's really no one right form. This is the way to do it, or every church would be operating uh, under that. We would be reading books about the form of government that we need to have. Um, but the, the scripture doesn't really talk much about church government because they didn't have church the way we have churches. Um, it was just a different setup. It was a different time. Uh, the basic plan of local congregational form of governing individual local church elections. Again, you will not find the word elections in the Bible regarding choosing elders, choosing leaders, choosing pastors. They weren't elected. They were always appointed or cast lots. We allowed God to elect them. Um, throw the names in a hat, pull them out. Those are the elders. We allowed God to decide whose name was on the slip of paper when it was pulled out. Um, 
nothing wrong with that. Uh, that's how they picked uh, Judas's replacement, by casting lots. And the lot fell on Matthias. Now, we don't hear anything more of Matthias after that. He didn't play a real predominant role. Um, but there weren't elections. There wasn't majority. There wasn't two-thirds of a majority. There, it was appointments. Um, Acts chapter 1, they cast lots. The lot fell to Matthias. Acts chapter 6, the proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, uh, Prochorus, Nicanor, and some other guys that I'm not even going to try to pronounce their names. Um, And they presented them to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. Um, And so these men were selected. They were chosen. Now, we don't know exactly how they were chosen, um, but there, there needs to be, the churches need to be able to uh, elect or appoint or choose uh, their leadership. Individual local church discipline. Uh, there needs to be some form of discipline within the church. And we're going to talk about that more in a couple weeks. Um, but uh, Matthew chapter 18 really is the form. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over into discussion. That's the best thing right there. Just verse 15. If we, if we could just solve every problem with verse 15 and not need 16, 17, and, eight, or 16 and 17, we'd be so far ahead. That if I have a problem with, with a brother or a sister and I just go to them and we sit down and we work it out and then we, we restore the relationship, we fix the problem and we go on, how great would that be? But how seldom does that actually happen? We're going to talk about that. I don't want to get on that horse right now. Um, if he will not listen, then take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Basically, I have absolutely nothing to do with him. If, if a person has, is caught in an offense, a sin, um, any sin, and you confront that person, and they don't listen, and you take two or three others, probably at that point, an, an elder or a pastor, and take them and confront them, and they still won't listen. And then you bring them to the, the discipline committee, the, the, the subcommittee of the elders, and they still won't listen, and you get rid of them. You kick them out. Um, and you, you treat them as you would uh, any unbeliever, any, any person who's unwilling uh, to listen to the gospel. It's a little harsh, but it's the way God, it's the way Jesus uh, set it up. Uh, and then the last one, individual church decisions and actions. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Uh, Churches calling missionaries, churches setting out to, to ministry to their communities, to the world. Uh, each individual church has a responsibility to be doing that. Um, we, we are part of the Christian Missionary Alliance, but we can't just rest on the fact that we are a part of that. We need to be a very working part of the Christian Missionary Alliance. Um, and we are. Uh, our, our support of missions uh, worldwide is, is, I think we're in the top 10 somewhere of all Alliance churches in the United States. Um, and sadly, there are some churches that no support of missions, none whatsoever. Um, 
uh, not even talk about it. Don't you know? And and so there there needs to be that that understanding that that we have uh, decisions and actions for the world that we need to be a, a part of uh, what is happening uh, across the across the globe. If you have any questions on organization and administration before we jump into the next what we're going to do tonight? Like I said, it's not real exciting, but it is incredibly important that we understand how it works and why it works the way it does um, so that we can work with the system and not against the system uh, to, to get things accomplished. Um, okay, let's dive into uh, this next one and, and uh, lesson three, ordinances, baptism and communion. Uh, there's probably, you may have more questions about this when we're done uh, than you would have about organization and administration. So, uh, you know, if you have questions, by all means, send them. Does, do any of you realize, do you know, that on our website, we now have a new section to our website called Ask the Pastor? Or Ask a Pastor. I don't remember if it's Ask a or Ask a the. Um, but if you go to our website, click on Contact Us, and then the little menu that opens up, there's one that says, ask the pastor. Click on that, and there's actually a form. You can ask any question you want. It can be doctrinal, biblical, administration. Why does the church do this? Why do we have blue chairs? Why do we? You can ask any question you want. That comes to me, and then I get to decide who's going to answer that question. Um, and uh, uh, so it's out there use it. Um, you know, we just want to keep those communications. We don't we want people sitting back going, well, that's kind of a dumb question. I don't want to waste the time. Waste our time. That's, we got time. We can waste answering questions. We've had two or three people already use it um, with some great questions. Um, on, on one, ask an administrative question. What, what is the nominating committee about? Can I get involved? What do they do? Okay, well, I'd rather answer that question than have the person sit here and wonder what that is, uh, or ask the wrong person who doesn't know either and come up with something and walk out with the wrong idea. So it's out there. Um, lesson three, ordinances, baptism and communion. Um, we need to know, understand the difference between an ordinance and a sacrament, because those words can get used within the church interchangeably. An ordinance, that's the first one, is an outward symbolic rite ordered by Christ to be performed by the church as a visible sign of certain redemptive truths of the Christian faith. Okay, so all I, all I made you write in was ordinance. That's your first word um, in that first blank. But let's just pick that apart real briefly. It's an outward symbolic rite, okay? So it's something we're going to do. It's an outward physical sign of something that we're going to do that Christ ordained, the ordinance. He ordained it. He chose for us to do this or commanded us to do this, performed by the church, so believers are involved, as a visible sign of certain redemptive truth. So it could be a, a visible sign of grace, uh, of mercy, of any kind of redemptive salvation truth of the Christian faith. That's an ordinance. A sacrament takes on another whole meaning. It's an outward symbolic rite prescribed by Christ to be performed by the church, which efficiently conveys grace to the participant. And what that means Efficient, efficiently conveys grace is that by taking it or, or doing it, whatever it is, by doing that sacrament, you receive grace. 
Okay? Anybody have a problem with that besides me? Because otherwise they're saying you receive grace by doing something, some act. That's not how. Grace is a free gift. You don't do anything to perform it. So sacraments, we have to be very careful in how we use that term and what we call a sacrament. Um, so what we're talking about tonight is the two, there are two ordinances, two things that, that Christ ordained. He commanded us to do. Um, visible signs of redemptive truth, outward expressions of what, of what is happening uh, inside to our spirit. And the first one is baptism. Um, baptism is simply the act of washing or dipping into water. That's what the word means. Um, let's look at some of the purposes of baptism. One, it is a communion. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. It is a communion with Christ. Okay? Don't get it confused with communion. Um, but baptism is a communion with Christ. Romans chapter 6, probably the best teaching that we have on baptism. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. If we have been united with him in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, we, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now you get the picture of baptism, that it is actually a communing or a sharing of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That, that baptism is the sign of all of that redemptive work, that Christ died. Otherwise, he was buried. That's the going under the water. And then he was raised to newness of life, that life is different now, that now we live not to sin as we lived before, but now we live for Christ. And so there's a new life. So baptism is just that visible sign of that sharing of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We don't have to physically die. We don't have to physically be buried. Someday we will be physically resurrected. But, but the baptism is that, that symbol of the sharing. Baptism, one of the other purposes is it's a copying of the pattern of Jesus. We copy what Jesus did. Jesus was baptized. He said it had, it had to happen. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Jesus said, I, I need to do this. I, I need to make this public break, this, this public confession of, of what I'm about. And baptism was that. And he set for us an example that we're to follow him in baptism, that it is a break. It is a, is a, 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 as we come out, it's a newness of life. And if you notice in the life of Jesus, his, his ministry was not public. He was doing some things, but it was, it was not public until after the baptism. 
And that's when the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then ministry took off. And so that's kind of the same form for us, that, that our life, uh, you know, baptism has that, is that driving a stake in, that, that we've made a public announcement that we're living for Jesus and that our life is different from this point on. And, you know, I grew up in a church that if you came forward on a Sunday and you accepted Christ, you were baptized right then. The service just got extended a little longer. The baptistry always had water in it. It was always cold. I don't know if there's spiritual significance to that or not, but it always was. And, and that was just, there was no need to wait. Um, where here, it is much more of a, a part of teaching and discipling that we, we want people to understand and make that conscious choice. Yeah, you know what? I need to tell everyone. I need to follow Jesus in that and, and be obedient to him. Um, Neither one's right nor wrong. It's just two different ways to do it. We go back to the organization, the administration of a church. It's just two different ways of doing it. Um, but the important thing is that we understand that, that, that we need to have that communion. We need to have that sharing, that, that public expression that we share in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And we're following Jesus' example. Um, because something different happens after baptism. After we drive that stake in the ground, there's just something different uh, in, in the way we live. Number three is it is obedience to the instruction of Christ. Matthew 28, 28, the Great Commission, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus has commanded us that the church is to be about baptizing people. Um, that, that needs to be something that we do. Um, even to the point that most churches have in their you know, year-end reports how many people were baptized. Uh, that, that's something worth reporting, something worth telling uh, the denomination about, and, and we keep that uh, as to how many are baptized each year. Um, number four, the purpose for baptism, it was practiced by the early church. Now, this is something from the very beginning. I mean, Jesus did it. John was doing it even before Jesus started his his ministry. Baptism is not just a Christian thing. It was understood in other religions as well. Um, but Acts chapter 2, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Uh, Acts chapter 8, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, and this is to Philip, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. In Acts chapter 10, then Peter said, Can anyone keep, the, keep these people from being baptized with water? They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Uh, and then several others throughout. But we can see that uh, you know, Peter was commanding them to be baptized. Peter baptized. Philip baptized. The disciples were about, they understood that that was just part of that salvation process, that when you accept Christ, baptism is, is a natural next step um, in that. And so the early church practiced that. Um, and then number five is it's, it's a public confession uh, is really what it is. Uh, I've always said it's an outward sign of an inward change. Uh, that, and that's really all it does. There, there is nothing 
magical, mystical. I said there's something different, something goes on, but I think that's more just that internal, you've driven that stake into your own faith and you're stronger coming out of the water than you were going in. Um, But there's nothing magical or mystical about baptism. It's just simply an outward expression and you're making public what's been happening on the inside. John was baptizing more so, yes. Yes, just, just uh, aligning with the teacher. If you go back and you, you look at John uh, when he was baptizing, uh, um, confessing their sins, they were baptized. And the, it's the idea that they were making a, a proclamation of their own sinfulness um, and, and following John. But he said, one is coming that will baptize with the Holy Spirit, that there, there's a greater baptism left. And so the, the baptism of John was really pointing toward what Jesus was going to do and accomplish. Does that make sense? Right. Does a born-again believer have the authority to? No. No. I, anyone can baptize. Any born-again believer has the authority to baptize another born-again believer. Um, in fact, I encourage it. Um, I'd just soon not be the one baptizing a person if there is someone who's led them to the Lord, discipled them, been a spiritual mentor more than me. I'd rather see that person. Back. It's much more meaningful that way but it's not a it's not a pastor only type thing any other questions let me let me hit that note because uh, that note baptismal regeneration is not taught in the scriptures who knows what baptismal regeneration is okay let me tell you what it is baptismal regeneration means that you are not saved until you are baptized that it is the act of baptism that actually brings salvation to you. I grew up in that church as well, which is one of the main reasons they baptized the minute you accepted Christ. Because they felt that it was the act of baptism that saved a person. That, that, that had to be part of it. That you were regenerated, you were made new, you were born again through the act of baptism. That adds too much to the act of baptism. <laughs> That, that adds too much, uh, almost mysticism to it. Um, baptism is closely linked with salvation, but it is not a condition of salvation. Okay, because if it would, if, if that would require man to physically do something in order to be saved. That would be salvation by works. Well, how are you saved? Well, I believe in Jesus and I was baptized. I, I went and I did that thing. I accomplished that. I checked you know, that, that's not how salvation is. It's a free gift accepted by faith. And then baptism is an expression of that faith. But you've already been saved before your feet ever hit the water. Because at the moment you believe, you're regenerated. You're made anew. You're born again. The Holy Spirit moves in and dwells the believer. Um, and so we have to be careful that we put too much, some put too much emphasis on baptism. Uh, and if you want more information on this, I'd be glad to sit down and 
pull out my theology notes and we can pour through it. I didn't want to do it tonight. <laughs> um, but just suffice it. That, how many of you have heard of that before? No churches that believe that. Okay. Like I said, that was the church I was raised in. I came to know Christ in that church. Didn't understand baptismal regeneration. But then when, as I began to learn it, I understood why they were so adamant. And this was the danger in it. They were so adamant to get people baptized. Even to the point that they pushed it so hard that one of the girls in our youth group went forward to be baptized. And afterwards, we asked her why. And she said, to get the pastor off my back. That was her whole reason. And you know what? It worked. He never bothered her again. Didn't talk to her about spiritual things anymore. It was, she was baptized. Good, she's in. And forgotten. Um, and so it's not that, okay? That, that's just the danger of, of believing baptismal uh, regeneration. Well, let's talk about some methods of baptism. How should we baptize? Because, I don't know, there's probably six or seven different methods of baptism represented in this room, I would imagine, um, that we're all baptized a little bit different. Um, three words that we need to understand. And the first one is immersion. Uh, that's the Greek word baptizo, which we get the word baptism from or baptize from. It means dipping or plunging or washing or immersion. It means wet from head to toe. It means every inch of your body under, completely under the water. Um, this is symbolic of the death, burial, and resurrection. So it's the death, the burial, you're completely under, and the resurrection, you come up in newness of life um, from underwater to uh, out of the water. Now, when I was baptized, there's a lot of different ways to immerse. Um, I was baptized backwards one time in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, down and back up. That's how we do it here. My wife was baptized, and I think it's just because she needed it more. She was baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Three times she went under. I just told her she needed more down than, uh, than the rest of us. But there's a lot of different ways. Some will go forward. Um, some will just straight down. Uh, but the, the idea with immersion is completely underwater, completely immersed uh, in it. Um, we did backwards because it was the idea of dying and coming up out of the water with newness of life before you. Um, that was just kind of the symbolism behind it. Um, but immersion is the, the meaning completely under. Sprinkling. This is the Greek word rontizo. Uh, Hebrews uses it, the blood of goats and bulls and, and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. Okay, this was an Old Testament idea of, of sprinkling, sanctifying things by sprinkling the blood of a sacrificed animal onto it to cleanse it. Um, and then the third one is pouring, the Greek word ekcheo. Um, actually, I think it's ekkeo. Uh, while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. So we have immersion, sprinkling, and pouring. Now, how many, I mean, I know there are some churches that practice sprinkling. That's what they, that's what they do. Uh, I don't know exactly the method they do it. I've never seen it. Uh, I have never been a part of one of those churches. Um, some will pour. They'll just take a pitcher and they pour uh, over the person's head and whatever parts get wet, get wet. 
Baptizo, the first one, immersion, is the only word used throughout Scripture in reference to a person being baptized. The other two, sprinkling and pouring, are never used in connection with the baptism ordinance. Um, Baptizo is the only word that's ever used. So that's why we practice immersion uh, with that. Okay? Any questions about that purpose and method? Anybody have a different method than what I've already talked about? Dipped and put on the forehead, yeah. Okay, candidates for baptism. Who can be baptized? We've got two, uh, two categories. Believing individuals. Uh, this is the command to make disciples, make believers by baptizing and teaching. So we have believing individuals. They, they have to understand what baptism means. Okay, it's a, a sharing. They have to understand that sharing in the death burial, and resurrection. Now, they may be very shallow in their understanding, or it may be a very deep understanding, but they have to be able to, to explain what, what the symbolism of baptism is uh, in that. Okay, so believing individuals. The second one are infants. You, you know, some churches, we do not baptize infants in the Alliance. There are some churches, I think Methodist churches may baptize infants, Presbyterians baptize baptize infants. Um, Catholics have a christening type thing that is kind of the same. Um, let me just walk through five reasons why and then give you the why nots with each one, um, because I don't think infant baptism is scriptural uh, in any stretch of the imagination. Um, number one, they say it's the analogy between the Old Testament circumcision and the New Testament baptism, that it was that mark, it was that outward sign. What's the problem with that? Because when boys were eight, year, eight days old, they came in and they were circumcised, and that was the outward sign that they were a Jew. What's the problem with that analogy carrying over to infant baptism? Male and females. Women weren't circumcised, so should women be baptized as infants or just the men, boys? So that, that breaks down. Um, so that one doesn't work. Infants of Christian parents share in the covenant with their parents. Yes, but is this automatic? Or must children make a choice and make faith in Christ personal? Uh, and so they say, well, we baptize infants because their parents are believers. Well, actually, that's why we dedicate babies. Uh, we do baby dedications, and even that is more about dedicating the parents to how they're going to raise the child than, than anything on the child. We pray a blessing upon the child. Um, but even a baby dedication is more about mom and dad and the church than it is about the little one, the, the baby. Um, C, the household of Lydia was baptized and must have included infants. You can read in Scripture where there are, you know, Lydia and her household, or even I think Cornelius and his household uh, were baptized. But the fact that it says household doesn't mean that the, the infants were, um, because Paul and Silas taught very, very stringently that there's, it's a personal faith, it's a personal choice. Um, it's a conscious choice, and, and infants just don't have the ability to make that choice. Um, and, uh, you know, even, even that word household includes not just, it included servants. Um, you know, so that it was, the, the Greek word is oikos, and it, it went far-reaching than just family members. Uh, it was everyone who lived under that house or even worked within that house was considered the, the household. 
D, Jesus took the children and blessed them. So, (laughs) he didn't baptize them. Uh, He just blessed them. That's what we do through baby dedication. We take the children and we bless them. Um, But we don't baptize them. Again, it's got to be that personal choice. Infant baptism was a practice of the early church about 200 A.D. That's true. That's a true statement. Infant baptism became a practice of the early church about 200 A.D. That doesn't mean it was biblical. It just means 200 years after Christ, they started doing it. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's right. Um, and, and so, huh? I have no idea. Maybe for some of these other reasons that we shared. Um, but they would start baptizing or to get their numbers up. I don't know. <laughs> uh, the, but the bottom line is, Scripture teaches that believers who wish to be baptized must be able to believe and understand the meaning of baptism. They must be able to share what that symbolism, what that significance is. Um, and, and so that's why we have baptism class. Uh, we always have baptism class probably the week or so before, so that one, Denny or whoever's doing the, the baptism at that time, can explain what baptism is to make sure that they understand and hear their testimony. That's why we have them share their testimony during baptism, because we want people to hear the decision, the conscious choice that they've made to be baptized. And so that's always the, the, the question is, why do you want to be baptized? Um, and so is there a right age to be baptized? Nope. Uh, they just have to be able to, to understand and explain. I've, I've seen five and six-year-olds be able to explain as a five and six-year-old would understand, and it's a conscious choice on their part, um, as well as, you know, 80-year-olds, 90-year-olds. Uh, that have come to that point where they say, I want to be baptized. So there's no right age or wrong age. It's just when, that, when the Holy Spirit leads that person to make that decision. Um, I baptized my daughter when she was 12 or 13. Um, and we, don't, we talk about baptism in our house, but we don't ever say we think you should or we think you should think about it. We always wait until the Holy Spirit prompts them and, and we'll wait until they come to us and say, I think I want to be baptized. I think, and that's what Alex did when she was 12 or 13. Mackenzie, just now at 14, she was saying, I think the next time I want to be baptized. And Michael's playing Xbox, so we're not real sure where he's at. So that's baptism. That's an ordinance. Ordained by Christ, set up as a visible sign of, of, a, of a redemptive work of what Jesus did through his death, burial, and resurrection. So we're commanded to be baptizing. It, it, that's why it needs to be a a, a big part of what the church does. Um, we do it twice a year um, for no apparent reason. It's just that's when we've done it. We would more than welcome. Bob usually does uh, Dominican trips. People a lot of times are baptized in the, in the Caribbean, in the ocean, uh, in, on the missions trips, uh, which is kind of a cool thing. And uh, so there's a, a lot of opportunities to be baptized. And uh, usually it's why we make an entire service out of it uh, because of the prominence of it. Uh, the second ordinance is that of communion. It comes by many different names. Uh, <clears throat> one is the Lord's Supper. That's probably the one other than communion that we know the best. Uh, the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, that's what Paul calls it, calls it. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. He's actually chastising them because they're doing it incorrectly. Um, again, he also calls it the, the table of the Lord. Uh, 
in 1 Corinthians 10, 21, he says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Um, and so, you, you, you know, you can't live both sides of, of that. If you're communion, if you are a part, if you're a believer, then you need to, to live that way, um, is what he's telling them. It's also uh, referred to many times as the Eucharist or the Holy Eucharist. Has anybody ever heard of it called that? That's kind of that official liturgy name, uh, the Holy Eucharist. That's, Eucharist is just the Greek word meaning thanksgiving uh, is what it is. And so it's an expression of our thanks to God. And then the, the fourth one is the breaking of bread. We many times call that, you know, the, the breaking of bread. Acts chapter 2, 42 and 46 said that they, the church, or the, the disciples, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Now, that breaking bread could have two different meanings. Um, I think in the first meaning, in the first Verse 42, it probably meant communion, the Lord's Supper. The, they broke bread together, prayed, because all of those are kind of church actions. Devoted to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. That, that makes sense that that would be communion. In the second one, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. That probably just means they shared a meal. Um, because it can, the breaking of bread can be understood in both ways, communion or a meal. And you just have to put it in context to determine what the, what the meaning is um, with that. So those are kind of the names of communion. Uh, the ordination, where, where did Jesus ordain it? Matthew chapter 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, uh, when they are up in the upper room. And I think many of you know the story that goes right along with Easter, that they're in the upper room. Uh, Jesus actually starts it by washing the disciples' feet. Uh, and then he says, you know, the, take this, take, eat. This is my body given to you. Uh, and then he took the cup, blessed it, and said, drink, this is a new covenant in my blood. He instituted communion in the upper room, and we follow much of the same uh, way. Has anybody ever partaken of a foot-washing ceremony? Kind of a cool thing. Very humbling. Uh, more so for the people, person getting their foot washed than the person doing the washing, uh, which if you read... If you read uh, you know, when Matthew, or if, when you read when Jesus went to wash Peter's feet, Peter was the one that was very humbled uh, by that. And uh, it's kind of a cool thing uh, with that. Paul's teaching on it uh, is in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 23 through 34. We won't take time tonight. You go back through and read those. Read those stories in the gospel of the, of the upper room and, and get a feel for what's going on, what Jesus knows is about to happen, and how he's ordaining this thing, this Lord's Supper, this communion, to be a symbol of what he's about to do. Okay, it's an ordinance. It's, a, it's that symbol of, of the redemptive truth of his shed blood and giving of himself his sacrifice. Okay, the symbolism behind it, we have two parts of it. We have the bread and the wine or the cup. Uh, the bread really is it's probably unleavened bread. Uh, as it was at the Passover and all yeast, all leavening agents were removed from the house. Okay, so it was unleavened bread that they would have been sharing around that table when he said, take, eat, this is my body. Um, although this is descriptive and not prescriptive, meaning that really any bread will do. Um, <clears throat> someone said Christ checks. Um, be the, kind of a slang 
term for it. Any bread, any cracker, um, you know, anything that along those lines that would resemble that, that we understand is symbolic of Christ's body. Okay, uh, I think I told the story we were at church camp one year and a summer camp with, with junior and senior hires. And we were studying and, and reading through and we had not planned on taking communion at all. That was not part of our plan, but it came up in conversation and the kids got more and more interested. And, and they said, we want to have a communion service. Well, we were not prepared for it. But you know what we used? Potato chips and Coke because that we had an ample supply <laughs> at church camp. And so that's what we used. Now, is that sacrilegious? No, it was, the symbolism was there. It was behind. They, they understood what those elements represented. And so it's irregardless of what we use. Um, it's the symbol. And then we have the cup, the cup or the, the fruit of the vine, grape juice. Uh, some denominations do use wine. Uh, there's no indication whether it was fermented or not, but it very well could have been. Uh, in that upper room, because that was the drink of the day. Um, it pretty much meant it was, it was pure. It, w- it wouldn't have been uh, had harmful uh, things in it, uh, like water would have done. Uh, the, the fermenting process would have, would have kept it so that they could drink it, um, because that drinking of wine was customary uh, in Bible times. Grape juice is just really cheaper uh, with that. Variations in beliefs. Now, here's where we, we get into some, we need to understand what it is. The first variation in, in is, is called transubstantiation. I put it in there for you. didn't make you spell it out, all right? Transubstantiation. This is the Roman Catholic view regarding communion. How many of you former Catholic? Two. Usually there's more than that. Um, I think about half of our congregation is former Catholic. I grew up in the Catholic Church. But the Roman Catholic view uh, requires that the proper words are spoken only by a priest over the elements. And then something happens, that, that as the, the bread and the wine change their very essence, that as it is placed in the mouth of the person, that the bread actually becomes flesh. Still tastes like bread, still feels like bread, but it actually becomes the flesh of Christ. It actually becomes the body. And the wine, as you, as you drink it, actually becomes blood. Still tastes like juice, tastes like wine, but in its essence, it becomes blood. That's transubstantiation, that the, the, that the, the sacrament, um, they take it to a sacrament. Um, in the sacrament of the mass, there is then a, a reoffering of the sacrifice on behalf of the participant. So that, it, that grace is extended when communion is given. That's why first communion is so big in the Catholic church, because that is when grace is extended to the person, that there is that, that at that, uh, at that ceremony, at that first communion, and every time they take communion, grace is, is given to them, a saving grace. Now, Hebrews would kind of speak against the need for grace to be for that sacrifice to be given over and over and over and over. It says, such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath 
which came after the law, appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. So that Jesus' sacrifice only had to be made once. So the whole transubstantiation is kind of a re-sacrifice, a re-breaking of the body, a re-spilling of the blood uh, that really is not necessary. It's been done once, and now we can go symbolically. Um, Consubstantiation is the second one. This is the Lutheran view and involves the partaking of the actual body and blood of Jesus in, with, and under the element. So again, it's kind of a... The elements stay the same, but it's understood that the body and the, and the blood is all within those elements. Um, again, it's words that are spoken over them. Uh, the spiritual, symbolic, or mystical presence. Presbyterians in Reformed Church view that the Lord's presence is spiritually, though not physically, attached to the bread and the cup. Okay, so, so when you take the bread, the, the Spirit of the Lord is actually attached to that bread, and you're taking it in, and the same with the cup. Um, I like the fourth one. It's commemoration. Our view that the bread and the juice are intended to be no more than memorials of the body and the blood. It's simple. It's believable. Uh, it's truly just symbolic that that's all they are. Um, yeah. Right. We're going to get to that in just a little bit. We're coming right up to it. Uh, that's a very good question. Who, who can take communion? And we're going to get there uh, when we talk about participants. How, the frequency. Any questions over the trans, cons, spiritual, or commemoration? Okay, frequency. How often should we do it? 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my body, in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Those are the words of Jesus. When does Jesus say how frequently we should do it? Right. He doesn't say. He just says, whenever you do it, do it this way. (laughs) He doesn't say do it every day, do it once a week, do it once a month, do it once a year do it every other month. He doesn't say, but he says, just be sure of this. When you do it, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do it in the proper manner. Do it in the right reverence and the right respect. Um, So there's a danger of doing it too frequently because it becomes commonplace and it loses its meaning. It becomes no different than the opening song. You know, we do an opening song, a prayer, three more songs, communion, the message, and then we get to go home. And it just becomes that. I grew up in that church. How I ever came out as well as I did is amazing to me. Some of you might be questioning that right now. Uh, <laughs> but I grew up in a church where it was, it was every Sunday morning. And it got to be where, where we were sitting back doing whatever teenagers were doing in the back pew. And when communion came, they passed it. We took it. We passed it on. And we got back to doing whatever it was we were doing before it got passed. There was, it became so commonplace that we didn't really know why we were doing it or what it was all about. And they had a little explanation before, but again, that was all commonplace. And uh, so that's the danger of doing it too frequently. There's also a danger of doing it too infrequently to where we may lose the meaning and our memories need jogging more often. We may lose the meaning because, oh, what was this for? Why, why do we do this? And so somewhere in between of too frequent and too infrequent is a good 
round number as how frequent to do it. We do it every month, give or take. Some Alliance churches are the first Sunday of every month. See, again, that can get commonplace and, and lose its meaning. And so we kind of mix it up. Sometimes it's the first, second. We just kind of, as it fits into the flow, as it fits into the service, as it, as it works, we don't want to force communion into a service, which is what we found we were doing sometimes when we tried to stick to the first Sunday of every month. We were kind of forcing it in. Didn't, you know, we're trying, well, let's, let's do these three songs that go along with the sermon and then this song that opens communion and then we'll get through that and then we'll do the sermon. And so now we try to make it much more of a flow. And so sometimes it does come up once a month. Sometimes it can be six weeks in between doing it. Um, but there's no set. Whenever you do it, do it correctly. Now, who can participate? Who, who can be in it? Number one is those that are, that are regenerated, the true believers, okay? Those with a personal faith and understanding of what communion represents, kind of like baptism. You know, my kids have said, can we take communion? And I said, why do you want to? What does communion mean? Well, it means that we remember that Jesus died for us and that our sins are forgiven and that, that his blood is what cleanses us from sin. I didn't use exactly those terms. I'm like, okay, you can do it. Um, you know, you have that understanding of, of what that symbolizes, of, of the right, of those redemptive works that this is an expression of. Um, parents are probably the best judge of what, their children under, of what their children are able to understand. And I've had parents come to me and say, you know, is there, is there an age? When, when can my child? And I said, that, that's up to you as a parent. And as the child, when can they explain to you why they want to take communion and the significance of it? And when they can do that, have at it. Um, participate. So they need to have some sort of, of, of regeneration, some sort of salvation experience. Number two is they need to have a Christ-like life. Do you know there are actually biblical reasons to refuse to serve communion to some people? Um, I, I've never seen this practiced. Uh, don't know what it would look like if, if we were said skip him. Uh, don't know what that would look like. But let me give you four reasons for it. Immoral conduct. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is the story of a man carrying on an adulterous affair with his stepmother. And the church was actually proud of it. They were proud of the fact that they treated him with grace and forgiveness and welcomed him in and he communed with them and he he, he did all of the, the ordinances with them. And Paul said, boy, you got that backwards. He needs to have a Christ-like life. And if he's not willing to, to stop this and confess it and call it sin as it is, then you need to expel the immoral brother, put him out of the fellowship, not allow him to participate in communion and, and in the other ordinances of the church. Um, the second one is disobedience. 2 Thessalonians, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. If someone is idle, okay, they're just kind of floating through and they're not in obedience to the teaching of, of the church, then they're not to be taking communion. Uh, we're to encourage them not to. Uh, if they hold some heretical doctrinal view, Titus chapter 3, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, and arguments and quarrels about the law because they are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. So even someone who's just, you know, they just always ask those questions to kind of rile things up. They're always coming in with a divisive attitude. They just want to stir the pot a little bit. 
and they have improper motives in doing it, I stir the pot. Sometimes I play the devil's advocate just to make people think. This person comes in to see what kind of havoc he can cause. Um, That's the person you're to have absolutely nothing to do with. And then fourth is divisive. I urge you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions, put obstacles in in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. So there, there are guidelines. Who can participate? Someone who has a salvation experience, who's living a Christ-like life, um, who's not divisive, who is not uh, you know, in, involved in, in heresy, is not believing wrong doctrine. Um, baptism or membership is not a requirement. You don't have to be baptized to take communion. You don't have to be a member of the church. We celebrate what we call open communion. Any believer, anyone who is a believer, Walking with the Lord, loving the Lord, is more than welcome to join at the table of communion. Um, and so it's open to anyone who comes in. If they're a visitor and they're a believer and it's communion Sunday, by all means share because we're all part of the same church, um, that, that universal church. Does that answer your question? A little bit? You can ask, go to ask the pastor and I'll send it to Bob. No, I'll handle that one. Um, one of the reasons membership is not a requirement, membership didn't exist in Scripture. There is no membership in, in Scripture. If you were a believer and you were a baptized believer, you were a member of the church uh, at that point. There was no formal membership. Um, participation preparation. This is very important, uh, and we're going to end with this. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 29 says, A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. But there needs to be a self-examination. And I know, Denny, usually we about always have that time, that, that time to examine ourselves and that instruction. Not always, but, but most of the time we will give that time to where you just really examine your own heart. Where are you at with the Lord? Is there a divisive spirit within you? Is there, is there wrong thinking? Is there immoral behavior in your, that you need to confess and, and clear up? That you need to come with God and confess, and that's the opportunity to do that, that we take communion with a pure heart, uh, with a right standing uh, before God. Because if not, there's that threat of judgment. Uh, if we don't recognize the body of the Lord, if we don't understand the significance of what the bread and the wine stands for, if we don't reverently and humbly bow before the one who, is, who it represents the broken body and the shed blood, and we just take it flippantly, then we are drinking judgment on himself. We're eating and drinking judgment on ourselves, um, And so that, that in itself is sin, uh, to take it without the right, proper attitude and spirit. Um, and the risk is, if we don't examine ourselves and we just go along with the crowd, we take communion with no regard of its purpose. We can fall into that trap where we just take it without really thinking about what it is. And so there's that time to examine ourselves, to, to, to recommit ourselves, to understand what it is that, that communion is all about, why we're taking it, to remember Him. It, it is a, a, a memory. Do this in remembrance of me. And then there's, the, the, there's also the danger of over-examining ourselves, okay? Finding ourselves unworthy to take it at all. And when we examine ourselves, we, we see our sinfulness. And we say, I'm not worthy to take communion. Well, none of us are in and of themselves. None of us are worthy in and of ourselves. That, that we have to humble ourselves and then acknowledge our unworthiness, 
but acknowledge Christ's work in making us worthy. That we acknowledge before we take communion that I am not worthy. I am, I, I am sinful. Uh, I was a sinner. I have a sin nature. I'm a fallen being. But because of the redemptive work of Christ, he has forgiven me. He has cleansed me, forgiven me from all unrighteousness, and made me worthy to share in his death, burial, resurrection, baptism, and his body and his blood, communion. And so we now can go with a clear conscience and, and partake in that. Um, and so that, that self-examination is very important prior to communion, um, as, Paul, as Paul taught. Any questions? Yes. Uh-huh. Right, that the, right, right, right. They believe that Peter was the first pope, that that monarchical system would be uh, scripturally based. Um, um, right, he, he takes it, Peter meaning Cephas, was what they called him. Peter Petra means rock. And that was the name that he changed his name from Cephas to Simon Peter. And upon Peter, I will build my church. Not meaning upon that one, that one person, because he used all of the apostles equally. Um, if any of them rose to prominence, it would have been Paul um, and not Peter. Um, and so I don't know that he was specifically saying Upon you, Peter, your life, am I going to build my church? And you'll be better than all the rest of these. Um, because he never, he never put Peter, he never lifted one person above all of the others uh, in that, as far as the apostles go. Right. Right. And I understand, yeah, and Roman Catholic takes that as he was the first pope um, in that. Any other questions? Okay, next week we are going to, uh, I think next week we're going to talk about church discipline. What does that look like? That'll get a little more exciting um, because I got some stories for that one uh, (laughs) without names uh, uh, to share and how how that's supposed to work and and what role do we play when we know of things and divisions. So let me pray for you and then we'll be dismissed. Father, again, we are thankful that you are our God that you do love us, care for us, that you like to do everything decently in order, and you have laid out a plan for your church, how to operate, how to function, and and ordinances that we're to follow that that are reminders of the incredible sacrifice your son made for us. Father, may we never get those out of uh, and give too much priority or too little priority to them. May we we keep them in the right perspective, uh, that we understand that, that, that we are ever mindful of your work on the cross and, and how much we need that, that we, we are in need of a Savior day in, day out, moment by moment. That the only way we function according to your will is according to your Spirit. So Father, send us with your Spirit, fill us with your Spirit, lead us, uh, that we might bring others into a knowledge of who you are and in in this, this incredible redemptive work that you have done on the cross. And we'll give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. See you next week.